Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Today we're talking about sex and the Puritans. I know, that probably doesn't actually sound all that sexy. Uh, I promise it's not going to be a boring episode all about prudes in the missionary position, probably still wearing their black clothes and their buckle shoes. (laughs) The Puritans were far more sexually adventurous than you might suspect, so much so that they challenged traditional family values and caused some religious crises and maybe caused just a little bit of a panic about bestiality. It'll be fun, I promise. I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig, a history podcast. We have an image of Puritans as cold, severe, hyper-strict, and religious people. And while that's not entirely false, it's also not entirely true. From the beginning, early Americans were thinking about sex. Even before English people had arrived in the New World, they were envisioning the very land in a sexual way, describing it as a, quote, fair virgin longing to be sped and meet her lover in a nuptial bed. In a way, they thought of it as a kind of Garden of Eden, an unpopulated wilderness that needed people to procreate. For example, a book written in the 1600s called The Isle of Pines described a young man named George Pine who was shipwrecked with several women. Convenient, right? A teenage girl, two maidservants, and an enslaved woman. After a little while, George and the maidservants started having sex. Quote, at first in private. <laughs> Sorry, this is so funny. <laughs> Stop looking at me. It's going to make me laugh more. After a while, George and the maidservants started having sex. Quote, at first in private, but after custom taking away our shame, there being none but us, we did it more openly as our lust gave us liberty. Soon, uh, George was also having sex with the teenage girl and the enslaved woman. Before long, he and his nearly 2,000 children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren have populated this island. (laughs) Get it? Why it was called the Isle of Pines? Because they're a bunch of George Pines descendants. Yeah, because he populated the whole island with his own children. With his own little pines. Not like actual pines. Correct. Right, okay. (laughs) Hilarious. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> I, when I got it, I was like, oh! Um, the idea that the New World and the New Puritan Church in Massachusetts would be a den of sexual deviance was a common theme in England as well. A popular poem published in the 1600s suggested that the new church was going to make, quote, all things common to avoid strife, and therefore, quote, each man may take another's wife and keep a handmaid too, if need, to multiply, increase, and breed, end quote. Part of this was just glee at the hypocrisy of the Puritans who were known for being hyper strict about sexuality. Um, I think, and there's probably better reasons for this, too, having to do with religious rivalries that led to the English Civil War. Because the Reformation didn't happen in England like it happened everywhere else, Mm -hmm. 
people were forced to uh, conform and forced to become Protestants. And mm-hmm. then they were forced to become Catholics again, depending on right. who was the ruler. So there was a lot of strife and a lot of disagreement about um, what was legitimate religion. Mm. So I think probably, uh, you know, Puritans in England were treated the same way. Um, but when someone in the colonies broke the strict um, sexual morality laws and the news reached the mother country, the English had a field day and they thought it was hilarious. Right. <laughs> of course, uh, much of this was exaggerated for a laugh, but even the leading men of the Massachusetts colony had to agree that sexual mores were being broken. William Bradford, who served as governor of Plymouth, admitted that there was a, quote, breaking out of sundry notorious sins. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, The courts were burdened with hundreds of cases in which people broke the laws regarding sexual morality, such as premarital or extramarital sex or pregnancy out of wedlock. The horror. I know. (laughs) And some, like Bradford, actually saw this as a good thing. First, the huge numbers of sex cases in the courts testified to the fact, at least in Bradford's mind, that the church and the authorities were doing a great job rounding people up for breaking laws regarding sex. Second, he saw it as proof that the Puritans were excellent Christians. So good, in fact, that Satan wanted to tarnish them in the eyes of the world by tempting them to bone. (laughs) I love how he is able to, like, really cleverly manipulate this in his mind. He's like, no, 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 this means that we're even better than we thought we were. (laughs) The Puritan authorities also faced difficulty policing sexuality in Massachusetts because not every single person who lived in the colony was a pious Puritan, especially in outlying rural areas where people tended to have ad hoc customs regarding sexuality. And in more urban places, especially seaports, where proximity to visitors and long stretches with sailor husbands off at sea meant that many women saw great opportunities in running informal brothels. One way Puritans tried to grapple with this was by blaming England for sending them all the bad migrants, such as five, quote, beastly sodomitical boys who confessed their wickedness not to be named, end quote, who came across the Atlantic in 1629. The boys were shipped back to England. The reason that I I included this story about these beastly sodomitical boys coming from England is because the, the way that the colonists tried to kind of make sense of these beastly sodomitical boys was saying well it's because they're english like right those of us who actually live here and are good colonists we're not beastly and sodomitical it's the english sending us their you know their worst sort to come to massachusetts it just reminds me of of averill's research about how in every kind of colonial situation all of the sexual deviants are understood to be coming from the other place right it's like how um syphilis is the french disease exactly you're english it's the italian disease if you're french it's yeah right Right. and gay people living in ireland like the reason that they were gay was because of english influence or because they were english people living in ireland right there aren't any gay irish people they're right no way england's fault right (laughs) Uh, and it's sort of the same thing happening here with massachusetts Mm mm-hmm But the problem of so-called sexual deviance wasn't all coming from uh, England. It was also homegrown. In one way, it was an outgrowth of immigration patterns. While the first Puritan settlers in Massachusetts 
were extremely devout. As generations went on, younger colonists pushed at social boundaries and created their own cultures, as immigrant groups always do, right? As mm-hmm. as generations go on, the, their cultures change as their children grow up and kind of integrate um, into society. Right. Plus, as years went on, more and more of the people who moved to Massachusetts from England were not Puritans, which diluted the religiosity of communities and also gave younger people non-religious or less religious friends and sexual partners. Members of different classes had different approaches to sexuality. Servants, for instance, were less worried about Puritan norms. Servants often took advantage of moments when their households were gone to hook up during church or militia drills, for example. Of course, they also sometimes snuck out and did it on the woodpile at night. One reason for this is that servants were expected to delay marriage and therefore legitimate sexual contact after their terms of service. And that's, of course, not always practical. Young people also took part in something called junketing, which was when a group of young friends, girls and boys, gathered to laugh, dance, tell dirty jokes, and sometimes engage in debauchery. It makes me think of the word junket in a whole new light. Right, like when when <laughs> celebrities go on press junkets. Yes, yeah, right, not yeah. the same thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> These junkets could often run afoul of colonial and community authorities, but even for Puritans, there was sort of an understanding that young people will do this stuff. When one group of young people got in trouble for carousing in 1676, an older man complained that the authorities were being too harsh, commenting that, quote, a young man can never be made an old man, end quote. So it's sort of like, boys will be boys or they're just they're young they're just yeah you know getting out of their systems exactly and and this reminds me of petting parties that happened in the 1920s we we have these panics about loosening sexual morality over and over and over again and they we call them different things right it was junketing Mm -hmm. and then at some point it's petting parties um we call them different things but really it's not at all new and that's why i roll my eyes whenever like old curmudgeons start with the kids these days exactly you know because please you're not the first generation to complain about the corruption of a younger one and you won't be the last because that's what they all do exactly junketing was most concerning to puritan authorities because of the dancing which was seen as hypersexual and too tempting Increase Mather, one of the famous or perhaps infamous clan of puritan preachers all with fantastic names warned his followers that, quote, the very motion of the body which is used in dancing has a palpable tendency to that which is evil. He also said in sermons, which were later printed and distributed as a book, that, quote, mixed dancing between men and women was utterly unlawful, a scandalous immorality, a recreation fitter for pagans and whores and drunkards than for Christians. But of course, none of this stopped people and they just kept right on dancing. And, like, now I can't help but think that Footloose was actually based on Puritan dance panics. I know. know. Isn't that so perfect? I know. There's Footloose, <laughs> Footloose works in That's every situation. That's where they got it from. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, as we mentioned before, some of the anxiety was also um, about premarital sex. This was not new. It had long been custom in England that engaged couples could have sex before they were married, which meant a lot of children were being conceived outside of marriage. In New England, marriage and even engagements took on a more formal tone. Couples had to publicly announce their decision to marry and then be formally married by a licensed individual 
eventually that official became a clergyman, but that wasn't really common until the end of the 17th century. Which, I, just to interrupt you, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Again, we have this idea that marriage is, has been unchanging forever mm-hmm. and that people have always had a religious aspect to weddings. And that's only recently that we've rejected religious, like right. religion out of marriage ceremonies and the as we can see here, that's not the case at all, right? Right, yeah. And some, I know, like, some uh, activists argue that that marriage is, uh, you know, they're okay with gay marriage or something being legal because they say, well, marriage is just a, it's a church issue. It's not a state issue. Um, it's kind of been a little bit of both for a really long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this didn't stop people from being intimate before marriage. Uh, no surprise there. Right. And in fact, uh, sex could often be a form of exchange between a man and a woman. A woman <laughs> sounds like I'm t- telling my daughter what sex is. <laughs> a, w- a woman would consent to sex if the man would agree to marriage. Men who made such promises in the heat of passion could be legally charged for breaking a contract to marry if they went back on their promises. So if a guy was like, you know, we can just we'll just do it a little bit now and then we'll get married. And then as soon as it happens, they're like, just kidding. Let's let's not it, do that. You know what it reminds me of? And this what? is the dumbest this is the dumbest example, but you know the, you know the meatloaf song Paradise by the Dashboard Lights? And the guy's like really revved up, he really wants to bone, and she just keeps screaming, Will you love me forever? And he's like, Yes, of course I will love you forever. Now can we have sex? <laughs> I'm just impressed you know meatloaf. That yeah. Well <laughs> All right. Um a significant number of people disciplined for sex crimes were charged with having sex and or conceiving before marriage, even when they married the person that they had had sex with. Hmm. They often tried to argue that they had been doing nothing wrong, hearkening back to the older English custom of allowing sex with fiancés. So basically after a betrothal, you could have right. sex. It wasn't really considered sex outside of marriage because the marriage had already been initiated, just mm-hmm. not really solemnized yet. Mm-hmm. Um, In these cases, the courts felt that their role was to bring the accused to the knowledge of their sin, get them to repent, and then publicly shame them in a way that would send a message to the rest of the community. So they're kind of using them as an example, saying, you know, this is what happens if you do Do it. it. (laughs) (laughs) There was also a disagreement between officials and common people over who had the authority to formalize a relationship into a marriage. Many New Englanders, especially those living in the outskirts, you know, outside of towns and villages, came to agreements among themselves to be married or to be divorced or to remarry without ever coming into contact with the state. There was a case, just for an example, there's a case in 1665 of a woman who had been in a long-term relationship and had had, and had, had children with a man who then abandoned her. Later, she entered into another long-term relationship with another man, lived with him for almost 20 years. I think she had more children with him also. At some point, she was accused of living in a pretended marriage and brought to trial. The central question was over whether this couple had the ability to simply declare themselves married. Allowing people to declare themselves married seemed like sort of a slippery slope into sexual abandon because... Why then couldn't you just declare yourself married to whoever you were having sex with and then as a kind of alibi, right? Right. And that's, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting thought, the thought of declaring yourself married. And I think now in Pennsylvania, you can do that. You can just, it's self-marriage or something. I can't Mm -hmm. remember exactly what Well, it depends on what kind of marriage you want. If you want a legal marriage, I mean, you have to do the paperwork. But if you want to have a commit, a, a committed relationship, 
that is that you can you can call yourself married without ever signing paperwork is what I'm trying to say. Right. Much later in the late 18th century, the question of marriage and sexuality led to a sort of middle ground with a practice known as bundling. It became harder and harder to control the sexual actions of the younger generations, and so premarital sex was less often policed. Um, and so I have the perfect analogy for this. When I was in high school, I had a cell phone, and like we didn't really carry our cell phones around. We kind of left them in our in our lockers because we didn't like text or anything. It was for I don't know, calling our moms for whatever reason. Yeah, it was like pre-texting. Yeah, it wasn't. So we just, we didn't even really want to carry them around with us. And then um, my sister, who is, um, I think, 11 years younger than me, it was a big thing with her. And it was like, no, you can't bring your phone anywhere. And, you know, she was getting in school suspension because she brought her phone to class and all hmm. that kind of stuff. And now our other sister, who is four years younger than her, you can just bring your phone wherever and just use it whenever indiscriminately. And it's really, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's because, you know, um, they were in this, this, um, they wanted to police phones so much more with, with my middle sister because it was becoming a thing where people started texting, people started Facebooking, writing class. And it makes sense. They want to control right. that. And then by the time, you know, four years later, they were just like, F it. Like, there's not much we can do. Yeah. Just, like, it's too late. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so uh, as people moved out into the country and cities grew, there was less social pressure. Your neighbors couldn't watch you and turn you in, um, which was a major feature of Puritan culture during the 17th century. Mm-hmm, that kind of surveillance that people did on right, one another. With those little tiny cities where they're all living close mm-hmm, to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of religious and social concerns, New Englanders were increasingly driven by economic concerns. So what does sexuality have to do with all this? Well, uh, bundling was a practice where young men and women would court or date at their parents' homes. As one English visitor described while traveling through New England, he wrote, At their usual time, the old couple retired to bed, leaving the young ones to settle matters as they can, who, after having set up as long as they think proper, go to bed also, but without pulling off their undergarments in order to prevent scandal, end quote. So essentially, these young men and women got all snugly in bed together um, while they were still wearing their underwear. And I think we all know, like, what was actually going on. Right, right, right. I mean, like, clothes, I don't know if, you know, clothes don't, it's not like a chastity belt. Like, you can, like, get, it's just clothes. So you just mm-hmm. do it with your clothes on. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, mom and dad are in bed. Who no, Like, no one's coming to do undie checks, right? <laughs> like, they... They, they could be taking those things off or they could just be, yeah, as you said, working, working around, yep. doing, doing a little work, work around. Or even if they're just like, I don't know, cuddling and yeah, snuggling. dry humping or whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was pure and dry or like humping. called drumping. Drumping? I don't know. I always called it that. That's not, I don't think it's, that's the I least, think I made it up. That's the least sexy word. <laughs> hey, baby, let's drump. <laughs> I drank too much coffee before I recorded this. Uh, when I teach this, this I make my students read this short article by Richard Godbeer about bundling. And it makes them so incredibly uncomfortable and giggly when I'm asking them what was going on. You know, because they're like, well, they got in bed and their parents, like, because sometimes the parents would like wrap them up sort of in blankets together. Right. But, yeah. Literally bundle, bundle them. them. Mm-hmm. Right. And my, my students, I'm like, okay, so what were they doing? Like, they were laying there in the blankets. And I I have to, like, <laughs> rip it out of them. I'm like, what were they actually doing? And they're like, uh, can I can I say it? I'm like, they were having, like, I scream it at them. They were having sex. And they're like, who, who? Like, 
<laughs> they're just it makes them so nervous. It's hysterical. Anyway, so what was the purpose of bundling? Um, we mentioned the importance, um, increasing concerns about the economy, right? Well, bundling was actually pretty straightforward. Young people were going to have sex either way, right? There was little that parents, church officials, legal authorities could do about that. And they had tried for generations. So instead, in an era where economic concerns were more pressing than religious ones, it was really important to be able to ensure that if your daughter wound up pregnant, you knew who to pin it on so you didn't end up with an extra mouth to feed and an unmarriageable daughter. It was a form of social control without telling kids not to have sex, which, as everyone knows, does not work. I don't know if everyone knows that nowadays, but okay. As many people know. Some people are still in <laughs> denial about this after hundreds and hundreds of years of evidence <laughs> to the contrary. The historian Richard Godbeer, who's sort of um, the grandmaster of studying Puritan sexuality, he discovered this fantastic song from the late 1700s about bundling. And I'm just going to read a couple of quotes here. Quote, In several places where they've heard, their preachers bold aloud disclaim that bundling is a burning shame. This too was cause of direful rout and talked and told of all about. That ministers should disapprove, sparks courting in a bed of love. So justified the custom more than e'er was heard or known before. End quote. They're sort of acknowledging that the religious authorities hate this and rail against it. But all that actually does is make it more desirable. Exactly right. Yeah. I'm going to read this other one. Okay. So here's another one. A bundling couple went to bed with all their clothes from foot to head, that the defense might seem complete. Each one was wrapped in a sheet. But oh, this bundling's such a witch. The man of her did catch the itch, and so provoked was the wretch that she of him a bastard catched. <laughs> I cannot handle that. It's so fantastic. And so this just totally blows out of the water our ideas about these pious and chaste Puritans. Although, granted, we also need to note again the diversity of New England society by the late 18th century of the 1700s, not everyone who lived in these areas was devoutly religious. Plus, after generations, the religious fervor had died down and there was less deference to religious authority. But still, we have a, a, a religious society, right? Or, or a society that's um, ruled by religious authorities. Right. But they, they had kind of loosened up on mm -hmm. that whole idea of the city on the hill thing Correct. um where they're thinking we are the righteous we've left from england to create these perfect societies they're not so much thinking about that they're just like living their lives right yeah it wasn't just premarital sex that puritan religious authorities had a hard time controlling sodomy which could both refer to any kind of same-sex sex between men or anal sex between a man and a woman, was of course highly taboo and illegal in Puritan New England. I want to pause here for just a moment to clarify something and try to get you all you all out there listening to us to think like a historian. It's really important to remember that just because there are laws or strictures against something does not necessarily mean that the act was rejected by all members or even the majority of a society. And it doesn't mean that it was ever charged against a person or whether people were ever convicted. So the existence of laws against sodomy aren't actually enough evidence for us to be able to say that sodomy was highly policed by the Puritans. Right. Um, but that's exactly what we often assume about the Puritans. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that laws against sodomy tell us for sure is that people were doing it because people don't make laws against things that never happen. Right. Yeah. 
But of course, you know, as you can probably imagine from where this whole episode has uh, come from, they actually were not as strict about sodomy as you might imagine, even though there were laws against it. They weren't as strict as you might assume. Uh, Richard Godbeer offers this great example of a man named Nicholas Sension, who was a relatively well-off man in a town in Connecticut. When he was arrested in the late 17th century for sodomy, his long history of soliciting sex from other men suddenly came tumbling out. He had tried to forcibly get men to submit to him. He had grabbed other men's genitals uh, at one point when he had had to share a bed with another man while traveling, which was a very common and usually, usually a non-sexual event. He tried to come on to his bedmate. He had clearly been doing this for a long time. In fact, he had been brought up on charges of sodomy decades before, but nothing had come of it. So what that actually tells us is not so much that the Puritans were strict, that they had these barbaric laws against sodomy. It actually tells us that people weren't all that concerned about Sension's proclivities or aggressive style. He'd been arrested in the late 1840s and then again in the late 1870s. Wait, didn't, I know, 16. Okay, I'm going to say. It's Sarah Hanley. I'm, yeah. My brain is always in the 19th okay. century. He'd been arrested in the late 1640s and then again in the late 1670s. But in the meantime, multiple people eventually testified that he'd come on to them, touch them, or whatever in the meantime. So why hadn't anyone turned him in? Right. If this is so frowned upon, mm-hmm. wouldn't people be, like, desperate to lock him up, right? Mm-hmm. Nicholas Sension was a fairly well-off man. He had had a position of respect within the community. He was well-liked. Even some of the young men who gave statements about incidents with Sension talked about him fondly. Richard Godbeer refers to this unwillingness to turn Sension in as a desire not to tear the fabric of the community. Because because Puritan communities were so close-knit and people were so tightly interconnected, there was a real desire to maintain that before punishing or ostracizing people. Again, really goes against what we assume about the Puritans, right? Mm -hmm. Sension was a part of that community. His victims, if you want to call them that, were all mostly young and in positions of inferiority. People felt unable to accuse Sension because of his social standing, or they felt as though it was just none of their business. Now, this did not mean that 17th century New Englanders were totally down with queer folks or there were no consequences for people who violated codes of sexual conduct. After all, Sension was arrested, he was put on trial, and he was sentenced to a harsh beating as a punishment. What it does tell us is that there were many factors that went into New Englanders deciding that a sex crime was worth punishing. That's really interesting because he was, I mean, today he just would have been considered, you know, queer or gay or, or whatever, mm-hmm, however you mm-hmm. want to identify, I guess. But, um, you know, and at the, but at the time, there seems to have been this sort of latent understanding of that. Like, oh, he's just, he's just that kind of guy. Some people just are just that. like that, right. Yeah, and yeah. It, we you know, we tend to think that there was no homosexual identity or something until much, much later. Mm -hmm. But there was sort of an understanding and a sort of level of tolerance Mm -hmm. that you might not expect. Right. Yeah. I mean, we we sort of assume, I think, that because it's only been sort of recently that um, we've become more open about gay identity in our society, that previous generations, gay people just were never accepted. They were totally ostracized, you know, which is true to a certain level, right? It's tr- to a, true to a certain extent. But there were also cases of people like Nicholas Sension and many other people who um, 
were either tolerated or just completely integrated into society with people, like you said, kind of the understanding that some people are just like that, right? I'm thinking of this great book by a historian named Rachel Hope Cleves called Charity and Sylvia, which is about these two women in a New England town who, um, in the 19th century, lived together as, you know, a married couple. Everyone knew that they were lovers, I guess, for lack of a better word, that they were life partners. Mm -hmm. And their families knew, the community knew, like, nobody cared. Everyone just knew that, you know, Oh, that's just Charity and Sylvia, you know. So we assume that it was much worse than it sometimes was. Because I think there wasn't a name for it. It wasn't like a thing. Mm -hmm. So people weren't like, oh, that she's one of those Sapphos or she's one of those Lesbos or whatever they would call. Because it wasn't like reified into a thing yet. Yeah. Um, And then there was probably a brief period where once it was a thing, then you can start – criticizing those people or punishing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know those people once you have made that lifestyle sort of, of when you when you look directly at it right does that make sense as opposed to hey this person's just kind of an eccentric weirdo exactly whatever. right yeah we don't want to run the risk of painting an overly rosy picture of puritan opinion on sodomy though it was considered a crime against nature we should also explain something about how the puritans define the word sodomy Today, we use the term to refer to anal intercourse generally between two men, but not always. But we only started using that word in that way in the mid to late 19th century. In early America, the term sodomy referred to any sexual act that was aberrant or deviant. Right. And that means that it could refer to more than just anal sex. In fact, the category of sodomy included one of the biggest sexual taboos that there is, bestiality. Yeah, like you said earlier, when we think about Puritans, we think about chaste, prudish folks. Definitely not a bestiality. We don't think about that. Right. We think about people, (laughs) I guess when we do think about Puritans having sex, we think about people doing it (laughs) missionary. We do that all the time. We do. I do. Uh, You know, doing it missionary, clothes still on, shoe buckles are rattling. Woo-hoo! But actually, as many of us might guess, bestiality happens in all societies and has across time. Alfred Kinsey found in his famous Kinsey report that 8% of his male subjects had had sexual contact with animals, with the number shooting up to almost 50% for men in rural areas. Oh, my God. So it's just like everyday life. Um, (laughs) This is yet another element of rural society that city folk like myself know nothing about, like 4-H and ATVs. And burning couches for fun. I just want to point out that I, I am a rural folk and I also know nothing about bestiality. But <laughs> but you know about 4-H. I do know about 4-H <laughs> and ATVs. I, although I've never burned a couch for fun. I have burned a couch. Oh, Elizabeth yeah. has burned a couch. You are a rural folk. <laughs> um, no, I just wanted to make fun of rural people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Just as Puritan New Englanders worried that living in the New World would lead to sexual wantonness, they worried that living in the wilderness would lead to increased bestiality. Sexual interaction, or even the suspicion of sexual interaction between animals and humans, had touched off panics in Europe from time to time for centuries. In fact, in the late medieval period and the early modern period, animals were often seen as capable of seduction and luring people into sexual acts, and they would often be held responsible in actual trials. Many animals were convicted and punished, sometimes by burning at the stake, for the belief that they had lured people into acts of bestiality. Mm-hmm. Actually, like victim oh. blaming. 
you know? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> in a really creepy way. Actually, in some of those cases, the animal was executed while the person, who was almost always a man, was let go because it was believed that they were too naive or too stupid or too otherwise incapable of understanding the weight of their infractions. The real guilty party was the animal who had lured the stupid person into having sex with them. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know, right? And yeah. our, uh, we just want to shout out here, our very fine colleagues over at the Footnoting History Podcast have actually a great episode on medieval animal trials, which covers some of these earlier panics, and highly recommend it. Um, in fact, this is a fabulous tidbit that I learned while writing the, this uh, episode, uh, even having sex in what we might today call doggy style and what scholars call the dorsal position, which I'm going to use that term now, <laughs> you know, it's very sexy. Uh, sex in the quote unquote dorsal position was punishable by 10 days of bread and water because it was too similar to the ways that animals have sex. And it puts uh, the gentleman's um bits, shall we say, precariously close to the anus. So sex in this position was considered, at least in medieval Europe, to fall into the category of sodomy. Wow. That's fascinating. Think of that next time you do it dorsal. Do it dorsal style. (laughs) This episode is so It's going to be so bad. Um, But we shouldn't overstate the frequency of bestiality trials. They were pretty rare in early modern England. Only 11 cases were tried at the Old Bailey in London between 1674 and 1834, which is extremely low compared to Sweden, which charged 1,500 people with bestiality between 1635 and 1754. See, it's the rural thing. Yikes. Um, And executed 500 of those. You know, I, I really don't know anything about Sweden. I mean, mm-hmm. historically. So I would love to learn more about why Sweden, right? Why right. 1,500 bestiality trials is a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. What's yep. going on, Sweden? Um, I don't know. I don't know what's going on in Sweden. But in England, they were kind of more concerned about same-sex sex rather than bestiality. It just wasn't one of their bugaboos or whatever. What? You, don't you love that word? Yeah, I think it's just, great. Bug, okay, yeah. What? Mm-hmm. No, bugaboo. It just made me laugh because it reminded me of buggery. Oh, Okay. That's what I was going for. Medieval and early modern religious authorities were, however, worried about making sure that the line between human and beast was clear. They worried that when humans did certain things that were animal-like, that they blurred the lines between human and animal. Humans, men, in their view, were made in God's image, and God had endowed humans with certain qualities specifically to place them above other living things. There are writings, for example, of theologians advising that people will not swim because fish swim and humans aren't fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to Very, make that clear. Yeah, it's, uh, oh my God. Uh, they also worried about how certain uncivilized environments might blur the lines between human and animal even further. Men should trim their beards, wear proper clothing, and perform work and other activities during the day, all to make sure that they avoided any association with the animal world, like wild hair, going shirtless, or even doing things at night uh, were all animal-like. So bestiality wasn't just rejected because people thought it was gross or deviant, but because it was as one judge described in 1607, quote, committed against the ordinance of the creator and order of nature, end quote. And again, I just want to point out that when this judge described it in this way, the crimes he believed went against the ordinance of the creator were 
mankind with mankind or with brute beast or by womankind with a brute beast. So he understood bestiality and same-sex sex as being the same kind of perversion of God's plan. Right, yeah. So you can see how when English folks landed in North America and had to live in very close proximity to the wilderness, one of their fears was a worry that people would begin to become uncivilized, that they would somehow begin to become more animal-like. And in some ways, their fears were realized. Just a few years after the Mayflower landed and the Plymouth colony was established, an English lawyer named Thomas Morton arrived in Plymouth. Morton wasn't a Puritan, and he did not appreciate the strict religious atmosphere of the colony. So he moved a few miles north to another community called Mount Wollaston. He did not get along with them either, so he eventually just gave up on finding a community he liked and instead took over Mount Wollaston. So how did he do that? Uh, It's a little complicated, but essentially he led a mutiny of indentured servants against the leader of Mount Wollaston, declared this new group the real community, and intimidated the former authorities into fleeing. Morton then set to making this new community, which he called Marymount, into his own utopia. And you know how much we love utopian communities on this show. Mm -hmm. He hated the Puritans. And so he set about creating a society that was their opposite. The settlers of Marymount lived with Algonquin Indians, intermarried and had sexual relationships with Native women, and happily brewed and drank large quantities of beer. Their Puritan neighbors were horrified, and they saw this as clear evidence of what happened to people when they failed to resist the lure of nature. Morton was arrested, he was sent into exile on an island, and the Puritans destroyed the village. William Bradford, William Bradford, William Bradford, the governor of the Plymouth Colony, even referred to their actions as beastly practices which sort of indicates how they understood living with Native people as not all that different than living with animals. Not long after, concerns about colonists devolving into animals grew into a full-blown crisis. Historians have identified that between 1640 and 1647, New England experienced a bestiality panic in which eight men were brought to trial for crimes of bestiality and four were executed. Even after this period, bestiality cases were not uncommon. In 1642, Salem, Massachusetts authorities brought to trial a young man named Thomas Hackett, who'd been witnessed having intercourse with a cow, and not only that, but on a Sunday. Oh my gosh. Town officials slaughtered the cow in front of Hackett before he himself was hanged. This was a tactic to both shame the convicted party, but also to demonstrate to the community the gravity of the crimes. Also in 1642, Thomas Granger was convicted for having sex with a horse, a cow, two goats, five sheep, two calves, and a turkey. Hopefully not at the same time. (laughs) It was an orgy. A barnyard orgy. (laughs) Um, As part of the trial, Granger had to point out each of the animals he had had sex with, which were then slaughtered in front of him before Granger was executed himself. Why kill the animal? Well, it was actually the punishment dictated by the Bible. In Leviticus 20.15, it reads, quote, If a man lie with a beast, he shall surely be put to death, and ye shall slay the beast, end quote. One way that New England officials had of detecting instances of bestiality was the offspring of livestock. Occasionally, a foal or a piglet would seem to bear a resemblance to its human owner. 
George Spencer was put on trial, convicted, and executed because one of his pigs bore a piglet that had a bad eye, which some people believed looked similar to Spencer's own disfigured eye. In my favorite case of all time, a poor jerk named Thomas Hogg, and yes, his name was Hogg, H-O-G-G, was accused of impregnating a pig because the piglets looked like him. Which just makes me laugh because what did he look like, right? Uh, Because they didn't have an eyewitness, though, uh, the officials instead turned to the pig herself to provide the evidence. They brought the pig to Hog in his prison cell and made him touch her in a sexual manner to see if she would react. And apparently she did. Uh, Nevertheless, Hog refused to confess to the act. And without any corroboration, he was... Not executed. I'm sorry, but this is hilarious. <laughs> I I um, have a lecture that I give in my US1 class that's all about this, all of the Puritan sex stuff. And when I get to the bestiality stuff, like if you thought bundling was bad, my students are like, kill me. Someone kill me now. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. Why are we talking about bestiality in this oh class? Oh my God. But that's, oh my, this, this is funny because I tend to think that a lot of like pets, for example, look like their owners. Like, you know, do, do, in 101 Dalmatians, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, Where they, they have all those pets walking by and he's like looking for yes. a mate and he sees every every pet looks exactly like their owner. Yes. I just love, I don't know why, I just love that. I think it's great. <laughs> Some historians have drawn comparisons between these bestiality panics and the witchcraft panics that took place in colonial New England, and there are definitely some important similarities. In the book of Exodus and the Bible, witchcraft and bestiality are lumped together as two of the three crimes to be punished by death. Exodus 22, 16-20 reads, quote, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed, end quote. Accusations of witchcraft often included animals. The famous familiars that seduce women to do the devil's work in ways which were often described in sexual terms. Historically, women accused of witchcraft were accused of having sex with evil animal hybrids like werewolves, demons, or dogs. However, very few women were ever charged with bestiality in colonial New England. Instead, these sexual relationships were all understood as part of the path to witchcraft, and most of them were unprovable. There were no eyewitnesses to a werewolf or demon having sex with a woman, if you can believe it. Right, generally. (laughs) Um, There's also an important and sort of sad overlap here for women who bore disabled babies or deformed stillborn fetuses. Often when a woman delivered such a, quote, monster, they were assumed to have either consorted with the devil or had been impregnated by an animal, and in either case, sometimes accused of witchcraft. The two charges, witchcraft and bestiality, became gendered ways of controlling colonists. Bestiality was charged against men who challenged sexual norms of Puritan society, while witchcraft was charged against women who challenged authority. There's another important difference between witchcraft and bestiality. After the Salem witch trials in 1692, there really were no other significant witch trials in the United States. But bestiality trials continued into the 18th and even into the early 19th century. In the 18th century, fears about bestiality began to spread out of New England, with a cluster taking place in the 1750s and 1760s in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. 
And although bestiality trials sort of vanished in the late 18th century as religious morality was gradually replaced with Enlightenment emphasis on logic and reason, there were suddenly two new cases in the 1790s. Two men, John Farrell and Gideon Washburn, both elderly men in New England. I think they are both in their 80s or one was in his 80s and the other was in his, in his late 70s, mm-hmm. were both tried and convicted for committing acts of bestiality. This is pretty weird because historians have suggested the era of the early republic or what we uh, call the period between roughly the end of the revolution and the 1850s-ish. Historians have suggested that that period was marked by a degree of tolerance of sexual deviance. Now, they weren't open-minded maybe in the same way that today's society might be, but they weren't prosecuting people left and right either. And they were more willing to look the other way when someone pursued sex, say, with someone of the same sex. So why were they convicting these two old men for apparently having sex with dogs and horses? Well, one theory is that it was a part of a reactionary panic to the Enlightenment itself and the sexual revolution that some believed uh, it was bringing about. Enlightenment thinkers rejected the dogmatic obsession the church, especially the Catholic church, had with sexuality and encouraged people to think about sexuality as a healthy and normal part of human nature. This didn't sit well with everyone. There was a severe reaction in Europe, specifically England, against deviant sexual behavior, with the greatest emphasis placed on same-sex sex. Some English men believed that deviant and promiscuous sexuality had contributed to the French Revolution and took steps to crack down on any kind of extramarital sex, even going so far as to propose a bill that would have made adultery punishable by prison time. There was a panic over sodomy, resulting in more men in England who were executed for sodomy than murder in the year 1806. That's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I can't. That's, wow. But none of this was really happening in the United States, which was sort of doing the opposite. Even though it was still a capital offense, Americans only very rarely prosecuted men for sodomy or sexual crimes. Just to recall back to the beginning of this episode, we talked about the late 18th century practice of bundling, which was extremely tolerant, for example, of premarital sex. The trials of Farrell and Washburn were the result of a fear that Puritan ideals and religious authorities were losing power and influence in New England and being supplanted but the turn toward reason and secularism. Prosecuting these two elderly men was a way of trying to reach back to the heights of religious power in New England in the 17th century. Right. So cracking down on these two men, whether or not they actually had committed these acts or not, was a way of religious authorities in New England to trying to kind of reclaim the authority that their forebears had had. That they themselves never did have and would never have. Right. Right. Yeah. I I think that that's really interesting. And I think that um, I mean, that just demonstrates to us that policing sexuality is always less about the actual infraction of the actual act than it is about these larger cultural, political and religious anxieties. Right. And we see that with um, with. Uh, infanticide cases as well Mm. we're pretty sure that the number of infanticides or at least the percentage of unmarried women who committed infanticides didn't really change over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries Mm -hmm. but in the 17th century many many women were brought to court for infanticide Mm -hmm. in the 18th century um, they stopped bringing them to court but women were still committing infanticide at the exact same levels so that doesn't really tell us anything about what women were doing at the time. Right. They were doing the same thing the whole time. 
it just tells us how society's attitude toward their actions had changed. Right. I mean, it also, I'm glad that you brought up infanticide. It reminds me, too, of of abortion, right? In the ways that abortion has been, has changed. The way that, hmm, let me rephrase that. The way that people have policed abortion, right? So people, women have always sought abortions and had abortions, but we haven't always crack down on abortion. Am I making right. any sense? Yeah. It wasn't something that you would like want to advertise that you did. But I think it's this, it's similar to the idea of of uh, same-sex sex, too. Mm-hmm. People were doing it, and it's just sort of like, hey, that's, mm-hmm. you know, not great. That's not normal. But they're doing it, and, it's, and we're it's, not talking about and it. And it's people that we know, and we like them, and so we're, we're going to tolerate right. them having that kind of a lifestyle and exactly. whatever. Exactly. Right. But, like, so, and, then, and then something happens that puts that particular act under a microscope, mm-hmm. and then suddenly it's... Now, I, we need everybody's opinion. Mm-hmm. What do they think about this? Right. Like, is this legal? Is it not legal? It's It happens with a lot of things. And it's also, it, it tends to go at times where there's some sort of larger anxiety, not just about the sexual act, but about something like, you know, an economic panic. Like, I think of the lavender scare um, during the um, during McCarthyism, right? I mean, during the early Cold War in America, that there's this broader concern about communism and communists infiltrating um and we kind of channel that larger fear into the more kind of focused fear of gay men right right and it's It's almost like yeah we can't we can't battle the whole big thing so if we just choose this one thing that we think is particularly abhorrent right we can tackle that and their excuse for that was that uh men who were homosexuals would be weaker and be more susceptible Susceptible, to blackmail. Yes. Um, And so they would like become double agents and all this Mm -hmm. stuff or whatever. Um, Or not double agents, just just agents. Right. But But that's the same for everybody. But even then, yeah, you're absolutely correct. It's so that's even that is sort of an excuse to just crack down on gay people. Right. No, exactly. Get rid of them. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, plenty of people had plenty of reasons to be susceptible to blackmail. But right. that was like the general line when they're trying to justify exactly. why they're doing right. this. Yeah. So I just love I, I love teaching that when I when I talk about the Puritans, uh, when I teach the first half of US, I always talk about bundling. I always talk about bestiality panics. Um and the reason why I find it so compelling, I think, is that we're all raised with this founding mythology about the United States, right? That the pilgrims arrived um, and they were good, moral, upstanding people. And we have degenerated from that. You know what I mean? Like yes. things, we, we were a shining city on a hill and we're always trying to get back to it, right? I mean, even Reagan talks about the United States as a, as a city upon a hill, right? Mm-hmm. We're always trying to get back to this like glorious moment of like Thanksgiving and... Mm-hmm. William Bradford or whatever, you know, these perfect people. Right. And they were having sex with pigs. Lots of pigs. You know, and and maybe they weren't actually having sex with pigs. Well, I'm sure they were talking about sex with pigs. Right. Yeah. Or they were having premarital sex or they were having extramarital sex or they were not perfect, pious people. No. And that's not only just our own foundation myth. 
that's a foundation myth that has been bought by people around the world. Mm -hmm. And I think when I went to Europe, and I think I kind of expressed some surprise that there was a naked woman on a billboard. Like, you could see her boobs and everything. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, that's a thing here? Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, we're not puritanical like you Americans. Right. You know? um, That Americans are very buttoned up. Right. Which is... So, Which is we weird. Can, we right. can be we can be like ruining the entire world with our rock and roll and and drug culture or something. But at but the same also time, be also puritanical. be puritanical. Which yeah. is true. I mean, that's yeah. that's true of America, right? We have we all have always had these two sort of concurrent uh, identities, right? right? Absolutely. Even now, right? I mean, we're. It's both. like Sarah Henley Cousins. Oh, yeah. With your dirty toothbrush. <laughs> My dirty toothbrush. That makes it sound like I'm into some sort of creepy, so. kinky thing with toothbrushes. All right. We, we can talk I will about cut this that forever. Out. I'm going to cut that out. Okay. Thank you. Don't cut worry. out my dirty tooth. I could talk about Puritans having sex all day long, but I'll stop now. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in to this awesome episode about having sex with pigs in colonial new england (laughs) and uh we hope that you will follow us on social media we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on pinterest we're on instagram at dig oh underscore history yep dig yep Mm -hmm. this is the worst (laughs) outro and please you visit our website where you can find our show notes it's Mm digpodcast.org and please 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 take some time to write an itunes review we beg you or review us anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Oh, and and we have a merch store. Oh yeah, yeah, we have a swag store. What's that, the URL? Do we know? Um, uh, you can find it. We've shared it on Facebook, and you can find it on our website as well. Um, but we What's have a. Website? It's dig podcast. Dig podcast. I already said that. Um, I already said that. This is no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, um. You can find our merch a link to our merch store at digpodcast.org. Um, and you can buy t-shirts and mugs and all sorts of great things. All right, that's it for this episode. Uh, we hope we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. How do we end these now? I don't know. How do we end these now? They would have made adulterly pun adulterly. <laughs> we shouldn't overstate how often people were doing a doggy style. <laughs> okay. okay. Oh, they were like making weird faces. Please do not let your uterus fall out.